episode 15 of The Uplift. I am so excited for this week's episode as we dig into one of my favorite leadership topics, how to create a healthy work climate. But before we get into that, I want to shout out to all my new listeners. If you were listening back in early August, you'll remember how happy I was about hitting my big milestone with this little podcast when I hit 200 downloads. Well, today, barely a month later, that number has more than doubled. Welcome, welcome, welcome to all my new listeners. Maybe you started listening because you're a young woman beginning your leadership journey, or maybe you're a mid or even late career faculty member or administrator looking to energize and lift your ongoing leadership practice. Whoever you are, wherever you are as a leader, I'm so glad you're here. I also know that our growing community includes folks who don't identify as women. And while I'm really focused on supporting leaders who do identify as women, I am absolutely delighted to welcome everybody who cares about women's leadership. When I worked at women's colleges, we used to say that we educate strong women and the men who get it. And that's the spirit that animates the Uplift podcast. So whoever you are and however you identify, Maybe you're a woman serving as department chair or program director. Maybe you're a woman on the dean track or supervising staff or student workers. Or heck, maybe you're not a woman, but you're listening because you support the women leaders in your life. Whoever you are, welcome. I am super glad you found your way to this podcast, and I'm so excited to welcome you into our community. Okay, you marvelous people, let's dig into this episode about campus climate. Let me kick this off by saying healthy work climates is 100% not the topic I had originally scheduled for today. But after the episode from a few weeks ago about having the best first day ever, someone asked me how you take the energy of a great first day and carry through the semester especially when you hit November and early December and you're battling exhaustion and an intense workload. And this got me thinking about all the actions you can take to sustain your energy and your team's energy over the course of a semester and all the things you can do for yourself to make sure you're nurturing the parts of your life that bring you joy. And I realized the question, how do I sustain myself and my team for the next four months? It's not really a question about daily actions. I mean, daily actions matter, and you need to get those right, or at least as right as you can. But that question of how you sustain yourself is fundamentally about sustaining a healthy climate and culture. I mean, you can't exactly life hack your way to happiness, right? Not deep, lasting happiness. And that lit the spark for today's episode. Coming out of 2021 and into 2022, we all knew that campus culture and climate and people's sense of joy and fulfillment and even personal safety were going to be key problems to solve in the workplace. Those of us who work on a traditional academic calendar also felt this focus intensify this fall with the start of a new academic year. And this problem isn't specific to higher ed. 
The general understanding that employees are dissatisfied with their work environments is in the news everywhere. Yes, it's in higher ed reporting, but it's also in business and industry journals, and it's in the popular press. Employees everywhere, across sectors, want to feel welcomed and valued. We want equitable access to the workplace using a variety of meeting modalities. We want the abilities to live our lives and love our jobs and integrate the two in ways that bring us joy. In December of 2021, Glassdoor analyzed its user data to predict what would be important in 2022. They wrote, Looking ahead, we believe those who succeed in 2022 will be those companies who embrace the opportunities to rethink old ways of hiring, employee engagement, and how business is done. In other words, what Glassdoor found was that the employers who would thrive would do so by changing some key aspects of their organizational cultures, not just their daily operations, but also how they find and appeal to the most talented folks in the market and how they retain top-notch employees by creating engagement, which includes helping employees feel genuine inclusion and belonging. That's a whole lot of change for organizations to implement in order to survive the great resignation. Roughly six months later, Inside Higher Ed gave us a glimpse of what this problem looks like on college campuses. A piece called Calling It Quits runs this lead. It remains unclear just how many professors are leaving their jobs during the Great Resignation, but stories about who is leaving and why abound. Will institutions be forced to respond with real change? In the essay, Professor Elizabeth Haswell is quoted as saying that tenure brings a kind of Stockholm syndrome. She says, you have worked so hard and sacrificed so much to get it that then you cannot let yourself admit that it's actually not worth it. And so you just keep telling yourself that there are these parts of the job that are great, which is of course true. There are parts of the job that are fantastic. And you just focus on those and downplay all the rest of it. Then she offers this observation. Maybe the pandemic just made it impossible to keep up that story anymore. The piece also points to additional evidence that many faculty members are suffering from burnout which tends to affect once highly engaged employees, and which is a leading driver of resignations across sectors. We see evidence of this burnout and suffering everywhere, at all kinds of institutions, for faculty and staff at all levels. We see another pervasive experience, too, blaming this kind of malaise and despair on campus leadership. This isn't anything new, and there's a long history of animosity, sometimes earned and sometimes just a habit, between faculty and upper administration. And so it's not surprising that when folks on campus are unhappy, it's campus leaders who take the brunt of the criticism and the blame. We see this happening right now at the University of Missouri at Columbia. The faculty council there released a report just a few days ago on September 1st sharing the results that many faculty members at the University of Missouri view the Chancellor, Moon Choi, as responsible for their low morale. One commenter noted that Choi has fostered a general culture of helplessness and submission across campus in which faculty fear for their individual and departmental security and risk retribution by speaking out. The survey about Choi was conducted at the same time as was a survey about Mizzou's provost, Lata Ramshan. One commenter noted that it was difficult to know how the provost would work in a different context or under a different boss, saying, it is hard to know what Ramshan is able to accomplish with limited possibilities and an overbearing boss. In a way, this is a classic story. It sounds one-sided and like the top campus administrators aren't supported by faculty. I'm confident there is a richer, fuller, more nuanced truth underneath all this. 
But whatever the situation at Mizzou is, this particular story illustrates something many of us experience. I personally have seen this at probably every institution I've served for the last 25 years, that the quality of morale and people's daily work lives is often closely linked to people's feelings about the institution's top leaders. As humans, we associate our daily experiences at work with our perceptions of the quality of our organization's leadership. So I was in this frame of mind when I came across a recent piece that grabbed my attention, not just for its catchy title, but especially for its closing paragraph. The essay is called Soulless Opening Year Academic Speeches. Pretty pointed, right? And in it, Kathleen Bowles Johnson writes, For years now, decades even, college and university presidents have made predictable and perhaps wrote speeches welcoming the academic year. She observes that these speeches and their attendant PowerPoints follow the same basic four-point recipe. Previous year highlights, current state of the college, the external environment, and goals. But what caught her attention this year was a change in her own president's presentation. She tells this story. When I listened this year, I admit it was mostly the same speech I've heard every year for the past 15 years, but then, in the end, I heard something else from the president to whom I listened this year. It was a president thinking out loud, speculating about uncertainty, talking about what he personally contemplated as a scholar and a poet in this moment in time. He conveyed what he thought, not what a cabinet member thought he should think or say to be safe. And when he did, I realized I wanted more from a president's annual speeches. I didn't want a banal summary of easily manipulated data anyone could find online. I wanted to be hopeful, inspired, or at least to feel like leaders knew that life had changed for everyone. I want leaders who can think deeply about today's problems and inspire others to do the same. Reading this essay brought to mind for me the most compelling strategic plan I've ever read. And okay, I just have to pause here because there's a sentence I never thought I'd say out loud. Anyway, this strategic plan is from McAllister College and was published in 2015. It's literally an essay. I mean, it has a few bullet points, but it's an essay and it has the simple title, Thrive. It sets itself apart by claiming that it is not in fact a plan. Rather, it's a call to develop a planning culture. Thrive was written toward the end of then-President Brian Rosenberg's 17-year tenure, and I have to believe that it bears the imprint of his influence as a scholar of literature. Brian broke the mold of rote strategic plans. When you hear people say, as I often do, that strategic plans across the country look alike, remember, they don't have to. But behaving differently, whether it's breaking the mold of the strategic plan or the opening academic welcome, requires courage to break out of rote predictability. I mean, look at Freeman Rabowski, recently retired president of University of Maryland, Baltimore County. He's an awesome example of someone who broke the mold and was successful for a very long time. Or one of my favorite expectations-busting presidents, Carmen Tuliambar, the current president of Oberlin, and also a bodybuilding champion. She's amazing. And if you're seeking some inspiration, check out her Insta, at FitPresCTA. Okay, all of this is just to say that it's human for us to notice when we are inspired by our leaders. We notice when they share their values. We notice when they infuse their leadership, their literal words and actions, with what they feel deeply and what they believe to be true. And as the Mizzou case exemplifies, we notice and we hold them accountable when they don't. So where does all of this land us? It's been a hard couple of years. We knew this year would be hard on the workforce nationally, probably even globally. 
We knew it would be really hard on college campuses where everyone, staff, faculty, and oh, especially our students, are struggling with so many issues related to health, to mental health, to happiness, and balance. And so we've worked really hard to kick off this school year with positivity and inclusive relationship building. And above all that, we are yearning for leaders who inspire us through authenticity, vulnerability, and honesty. If that's what we're seeking, how can leaders answer the call? What can you do as a leader? The answer is both simple and complex. It is care for your climate by building trust. Okay, so first, let's just break down the idea of campus climate a little bit. If you're a president or chancellor, you know, I'm thinking of the Moon Choi story here, you rightfully bear the responsibility for the climate of your full institution. But there isn't really a single unified campus climate. There's no single unified, maybe anything anywhere. But certainly in a big organization, there's no single climate. You have likely experienced this yourself. Maybe your department is happily humming along while your close friend is miserable in her dysfunctional department. We all have the experience of seeing that the larger campus climate is made up of all these smaller, separate, and yet interconnected ecosystems or microclimates. So if you're leading a unit, whether you're a vice president, a dean, a director, a chair, a faculty or staff president, an RA supervisor, whatever your role, you as a leader bear the responsibility for the climate of your team. Okay, so now, unless you're the president or a chancellor, you're relieved of worrying about the climate of the entire institution. You have the much easier job of improving the health of your immediate team or department. And the best place to start with this, and really I think the only place to start with this, is increasing the trust within your team. If you already lead a healthy functioning team, you'll be just fine-tuning some of your practices. But if you're stepping into a team where folks are feeling injured or underappreciated and undervalued, and their disengagement shows on their faces, in the tone of their emails, and in their behaviors, then you've got some big work ahead of you. But no matter the state of your unit's climate, you're going to do the same things. There are a few key ways to build and increase trust. And so that's what we're going to dive into. I'm going to give you four actions to take. And they're distilled from three sources. I'll link to them in the show notes. The first is a book called Communication Skills for Department Chairs. And in particular, I look at chapter two, which is called Enhancing the Department Climate. The author is Mary Lou Higgerson. She's a scholar of speech and communication, as well as an experienced administrator who made a career of faculty development for new department chairs and teaching communication skills when you're stepping into that new role. I have an early edition of the book. It's since been updated, and I will drop links to both in the show notes. The second source is my longtime favorite source for developing trust at work, Stephen M. R. Covey's book, The Speed of Trust. I'll tell you honestly, I have a love-hate relationship with this book. I mean, it is really cheesy, and also, it really works. I've taught the principles in this book to supervisors, department chairs, program directors, and my own teams for more than 10 years. Its principles have always worked, and that always, that counts for a lot in my book. The third and final resource is a more recent article published in the Harvard Business Review. It was published in June of this year, and it's called How to Protect Your Team from a Toxic Work Culture. The article asks this question, why is it that some leaders succeed in building cohesive healthy cultures that outperform their peers, while others build low-performing companies marred by toxic behaviors like backstabbing, credit-taking, and burnout? 
Their answer is based on three years of research, scouring a combined 40 years of data from the author's work as coaches at hundreds of companies. They found a consistent connection between quality of business cultural outcomes and the quality of the conversations successful managers regularly had with their teams. Each of these three resources is full of strategies, actual things you can implement that will help you build trust on your team. Some of the strategies are similar and some overlap, and I know you're busy and you really don't have time to go read all three, so I'm distilling those that I know work based on my own experiences, and that's what I'm sharing with you. Trust at work can seem elusive. Higgerson says you'll know you have a high degree of trust among academic departmental colleagues if you have confidence in each other's professional performance. You'll know trust is missing if you see widespread paranoia and if your colleagues regularly second-guess each other. For Covey, trust comes from your credibility, as expressed through your character, and your competence. And if you think about things like credibility or confidence or paranoia, then trust can seem amorphous and really difficult to pin down. But credibility, confidence, and probably even paranoia are the end results of behaviors The feelings we develop toward people or organizations are strongly influenced by the behaviors we observe. So if you're on a path to build or increase trust, the most important thing for you to pay attention to is how you behave. And it's because trust is based in behaviors that there are actionable steps you can take, right? You can change how you behave in order to build, sustain, increase, and even repair trust. Both Covey and Higgerson say the same thing about character and competence. They are attributes bestowed on you by others. You are only competent and you are only credible when others say you are. You have to earn those attributes by virtue of your behavior, which includes your communication. So I'm going to say it one more time. If you are here to build trust, pay close attention to how you behave. And here are some things you can do. You can start doing them if you don't already, or you can remind yourself to do them even more often if they're already part of your leadership practice. Here are the four things you can start doing to build or increase trust in your leadership practice. Number one, get curious. I want you to be curious with your team all the time. Be curious enough to learn about them as human beings. Shift from meaningless chit-chat like, hey, did you have a good weekend? To questions that show you care, like, hey, how was the visit you were planning with your aunt on Saturday? It's easy to be curious when the waters are smooth. It's much harder and it's so much more important to be curious when things are tough and when emotions are high. So as a leader, I want you to notice when you're feeling, you know, strong feelings like anger or frustration or impatience. Pause before you lash out and remind yourself to get curious Ask the other person what's going on with them. I once had a really difficult conversation with someone who was senior to me, although I didn't report to him. He spent 20 minutes yelling at me on the phone. When he was done, (laughs) I asked if I could share my perspective. He said no and hung up. The damage he did to our relationship in that moment was far more significant than the damage of the 20 minutes of yelling. We could have recovered from a one-sided yelling match. But it's much harder for people to recover a relationship when one of them tells the other that their words and ideas don't matter. This is why curiosity is so important. Aside from what you'll learn, which will be invaluable to helping you resolve the problem in front of you, your curiosity literally tells the other person that you care enough to see and hear them. This is essential 
for building trusting relationships. Okay, number two, be generous with your feedback. We all know this from teaching, right? Like someone's judgment of us is more valuable and easier to take in and act on when it's accompanied by meaningful feedback. The student who gets an A on an essay doesn't necessarily know how to earn an A the next time. The student who gets a C without feedback is likely even more frustrated. This has happened to me in professional settings. I once asked for feedback from my boss's boss. I had completed a significant project that I thought would be ongoing, and it wasn't. It stopped dead in the water. I asked my boss for feedback, and in turn, my boss told their boss I wanted feedback. The answer I got, well, tell Carol to ask me for feedback. And I was like, I think I just did. And it probably took us as much time for the three of us to have that circuitous, totally unproductive conversation as it would have taken for someone just to give me some feedback in the first place. And to this day, I still don't know how I could have gotten better. So give your team honest, open, and frequent feedback, whether you are praising them, redirecting them, correcting an error, or even tackling a big problem. Create a culture where feedback is normal. If you don't already have a culture like this, start with small, easy steps. Give praise framed as feedback. Share your thoughts and musings framed as feedback. Let folks see that thinking about each other's work and responding to it openly is a safe thing to do. And then gently ease into giving feedback in tougher moments. Maybe while you're establishing giving feedback as a habit, your team can coin a phrase that becomes easy to use like, hey, do you mind if I give you some feedback? Or even, I have some responses to what you just said. Can I share them? That moment where you ask someone's permission to share feedback helps them prepare to hear you. It helps them like actually open up a little bit. If you all get used to sharing openly this way, you'll start to reduce the chances for misunderstandings, you'll reduce the likelihood that bad moods fester, you'll decrease the amount of time you spend circling back and fixing things. Ongoing feedback, open, honest feedback, is essential lubrication for a high-trust team. And that brings me to the third action you can take, which is to correct your mistakes. Most of us don't like to be wrong, And yet most of us are wrong in ways big and small on a pretty regular basis. If you want to build trust with and among your teams, you need a culture where people own their mistakes and correct them. And this has to start with you. Covey explains it this way. Righting wrongs is more than simply apologizing. It's also making restitution. It's making up and making whole. It's taking action. It's doing what you can to correct the mistake and then a little more. So correcting your mistakes as the step is actually a multi-step action. It involves acknowledging your error and, if it's appropriate, apologizing. Now, some errors don't really need apologies, right? An error in a spreadsheet might not need an apology, but something more significant, like not standing up for a colleague when they needed an ally, probably does. So after you acknowledge your error, take the next step of offering restitution and make that restitution timely. The spreadsheet error is probably easy to fix and fix on time, right? The problem of not being an ally is probably harder. So if, for example, your colleague needed you to stand up for her six months ago and you're just now acknowledging and trying to fix the fact that you didn't, odds are good that too much time has passed and the damage of not supporting her in the moment has probably been done. But if she needs your support in a particular meeting and you don't give it, but as you leave the meeting together, you say to her, hey, you know, it took me a few minutes to collect my thoughts back there. Now I wish I had said, you know, whatever. But since I didn't, I'm going to go circle back with that person and make sure they know what I'm thinking. Is that okay with you? 
So here you may not have solved the problem of her needing your support in the moment, but you have gone a long way to solving the problem of whether she trusts you and whether you maintain a solid, healthy relationship. And lastly, step number four, build your team's strengths. This is one of the ideas from the article in the Harvard Business Review, but you may also be familiar with it as the cornerstone of Gallup's StrengthFinder's work. People's greatest opportunities for improvement are in the things they are naturally good at. Professional development focused on weakness, filling people's so-called gaps by sending them to training, or giving them an assignment they won't be good at and calling it a learning opportunity can be demoralizing and dehumanizing. Instead, get to know your team well enough that you know what they're good at individually, what projects they can each complete quickly and happily, and what they actually love doing. Help them get even better at those things. And you can use the first two strategies, getting curious and being generous with your feedback to help build your team's strengths. Take the time to learn what they're good at. Ask them about what they've loved doing in the past. Ask them what they want to do more of in the future. Ask them where on campus they want to contribute. I mean, ask them questions and then give them feedback as they grow and stretch and work on getting better. And do all of this with a mindset of abundance. You're creating more of what's already there rather than seeing deficits and trying to overcome them. Okay, so these are the four behaviors you can put into practice. Get curious, be generous with your feedback, correct your mistakes, and build your team's strengths. These are not silver bullets. You'll need to be consistent with these behaviors and use them to build trust over time. And also, obviously, these are not the only behaviors that will build trust. And if you want a longer list, I've dropped a link in the show notes to Stephen Covey's list of 13 behaviors of high trust leaders. It's actually kind of insightful. You'll see overlap with the four I've shared and his overall 13. But these four are an excellent starting point. You can start this week. You can start today. You can start in the very next conversation you have with someone on your team. You probably noticed a few common threads in these recommendations. First, they are concrete. They are not abstract concepts. They are behaviors you can implement. If you take nothing else away from today's episode, please take this lesson. Trust is built through actions. Everything you do as a leader either builds sustains or damages trust. Pay attention to how you behave. The second common thread is that while all of these are behaviors you engage in as a leader, they are behaviors for your team. When you act these ways with your colleagues, they will feel seen, valued, and recognized because you actually will be seeing, valuing, and recognizing them. You are literally acting in ways that create the feelings that are foundational to trust. A third less obvious commonality is that as you intentionally behave these ways, you can encourage similar behaviors from your colleagues. I mean, this isn't hard to imagine, right? If I see you acknowledge your mistakes with humility and kindness and without retributive fallout, then when you ask me to admit my own stupid error, I'm going to be a lot more willing and a lot less afraid to come clean. Lead the way with your own actions. And only once you've modeled the behavior, then can you ask others to follow. First, clear the path so your team has an easier time joining you. So all of this takes us back to where we started. If you want to build on the energy you brought to your opening days as a teacher and a leader, I encourage you to spend this semester, or better yet, this full academic year, increasing the health of your department's climate by building and strengthening the trust on your team. Focus on behaviors that build your credibility and competence 
so that people decide based on your actions that you deserve their trust. Create trust and psychological safety for your immediate colleagues so you're all thriving in a healthy departmental climate. And treat your department or your program or your unit or your committee, whatever it is you're leading, treat that unit as a unique, small ecosystem with its own climate, independent from and yet part of the larger campus climate. If you and your colleagues create a microclimate that is rewarding, joy-filled, and fulfilling, where you're all seen and valued and heard, that is a powerful gift that you as a leader are giving not only to your team, but also to your whole campus. So that's it, my friends. This week's thoughts on why trust is the one thing that can turn a work climate from toxic to vibrant. Go forth and build trust. As I'm looking ahead this fall, I have my eye on the November elections. I'm thinking I'll dedicate several episodes in October to the interrelated topics of difficult conversations and democracy, and explore topics like a university's role in educating citizens who can disagree and dissent, the role of disagreement and even academic freedom for faculty and staff on a college campus, and a question I've been obsessed with since the 2016 election season, which is this. What do women leaders on college campuses believe their role is in educating for democracy? I'm still pulling together my ideas, so if there's a question on your mind or a topic you'd like to hear more about or even a guest you'd like to hear from, drop me a line and let me know. Meanwhile, thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of The Uplift, the podcast dedicated to elevating and amplifying women's leadership. I hope you'll take a moment to follow over on Apple Podcasts or Overcast or Spotify, wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also find all previous episodes with show notes and links at my website, www.theclariogroup.com. And hey, while you've got your phone open, connect with me on social. You can follow the Clario Group on LinkedIn or Facebook, and I hope you'll drop me a DM and say hi. All right, that's it. I'll see you next week, same time, same place, for the next episode of The Uplift. Bye for now.